from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, WMBR in Cambridge, and biketalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. So today on the show, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about open streets. That is an idea that's starting to take over. It started with Ciclovia in Bogota, Colombia, and now it's spread across the U.S., and they're starting to take over some streets. We, we have an interview in San Francisco, which has been very successful. But we're starting off with you, Nick. You did an interview about 34th Street in Queens, correct? Yeah, it's a, it's a really long open streets project that has been very successful. Now, is, and, let, let me ask you really quick before we start. Is that a, is that a one-time thing or is, is this? Ongoing. Wow. Queens is uh, Jackson Heights. They've got 26 blocks car-free uh, wow. for most of the time. Well, I can't wait to hear how they got that accomplished. Well, you don't have to wait because here's the interview. I'm with Jim Burke, who's one of the creators of 34th Avenue Open Street in Queens. Jim, your street is celebrated. It's voted one of the best open streets. Yeah, so uh, actually uh, the current mayor, the last mayor, and a lot of the DOT commissioners have called our open street uh, the gold standard for New York City. Gold standard. The gold standard. We're 26 blocks. We operate from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. And basically, first and foremost, we're like a micro-mobility thoroughfare, uh, in addition to like a community center and a town town square. Uh, We have events in the warmer months about seven days a week, meaning everything from Zumba, teaching English as a second language, to grocery and clothing distribution, which we do even in the winter months. February is often a no-go, like, uh, although we did have a really wonderful Lunar New Year celebration. And of course, we still do the the food and clothing distribution. Uh, We still do things that are very active, but it's not something to sit down uh, as much uh, uh, in February. But otherwise, like I said, seven days a week programming. And every day, uh, it's a place to walk, jog, and take a nice bike ride. So when it's a no-go, are there cars? No, no, there are no cars from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Because it's always, we have um, a number of schools on this corridor. Uh, about 7,000 kids go to schools right on the avenue itself, half a block in or a block in. They use the corridor to go back and forth to school all year round, obviously. It's also a place where people have now come to expect safety. If um, In Queens, Unfortunately, we don't have that many protected from car uh, infrastructure for bicycles. We have now, you know, Queens Boulevard finally coming in. There's a few places on Northern Boulevard that are safe. Um, There are places, you know, in Rockaway Beach where they have a protected bike lane, but they're very few and far between and they're not connected. But 34th Avenue connects a lot of neighborhoods and lets you get from the the Woodside Jackson Heights border almost all the way to Corona uh, safely, and it's uh you know I I always tell people I I got a coffee cup holder for my bicycle because it's a different kind of relaxing ride now. Uh, whereas when I first moved here, it was just like a door zone bike lane that was kind of harrowing, uh, and something that most of my neighbors would not do. Deliveristas and the intrepid. Yeah, of course, they they do it uh, under all circumstances. But now you have women, you have young children, you have uh, older folks uh, who bike and because they can do safely, so safely. 
it's also like a great place to like get comfortable. Um, we do a family bike ride. We did, I don't know how many, how many rides, but probably a hundred. And um, people get, you know, get their skills on 34th Avenue. And then they start to venture out uh, a little further. And we do bike rides to all like the different kind of, you know, we'll go to a museum. We'll go to Plainview Park to watch the airplanes take off. Uh, we'll go to Flushing Meadow, um, uh, City Field. Um, and we have people to help people who are kind of newbies. So Queens is the city. I don't know if it's any harder or easier to get an open street in a dense area or... I would say that having an open street um, is difficult, but doable anywhere. Uh, you have to have a lot of people on your side. And, you know, there is, if you're a driver, uh, we recognize there's, you know, some inconvenience, right? But if you're a pedestrian or a bicyclist or a, a jogger, or you have children, there are so many pluses and there's so many, it's so many ways that it makes your life nicer. We're talking right now. I'm I'm on 34th Avenue. My apartment overlooks 34th Avenue. It's quiet. Uh, when school gets out of here, because the kids are horsing around and laughing. Um, but before it was an unending sea of <laughs> of horns and uh, uh, and ambulances that got stuck behind parked cars uh, and double parked cars. And now, for the most part, it's quiet, and I really relish that. Well, that's interesting. You know, one of the big objections that people who fight uh, slow streets, open streets, any kind of street calming objections people make, among many others, like, you know, the problems for businesses. You know, if we can't have car parking, we can't have our revenue. But the uh, emergency vehicle access, but that's not a problem for you, I guess, because. Well, so remember, we still have 26 side streets, right? Uh, those are still open for traffic. So you can access all, every single block on the side street. And emergency vehicles uh, and people who really need to can access any section of 34th Avenue as well, uh, except for the plaza blocks. So we recently got some car-free plaza blocks that are accessible to emergency vehicles, but they they do not allow uh, regular car traffic at all. And that's in front of our only park, and it's in front of a few of our schools. Um, and that's great because... You know, school pickup and drop off, if you might know, is probably the most dangerous time for kids around the city, around, around the whole country. That's when kids usually get hit by someone else's parent in a rush to pick up their own child. Now it's a much more relaxing kind of chill environment. The kids run out of the schools directly into the street, which has no traffic and no cars allowed. And it's such a different kind of fun environment. People stay there for a lot longer. They might hang out for half an hour or hour or more. Uh, we also have a lot of activities uh, at those locations as well to take advantage of people who, who want to exercise, work out, or just socialize or listen to music. And it's really been a life-changing difference in a very, you know, this is like one of the most dense neighborhoods in all of Queens, right? And now you have a place where you can walk and bike and and get some tranquility, but you also have a big social network. It's sort of like the Rockaway Boardwalk. You can't walk a block without talking to somebody. People are trying to do this everywhere. And for some reason, it's hard. It must have been hard. Well, the, you application, the application is pretty easy. You know, you just want to get as many neighbors, parents, 
we have a big volunteer database. We probably have 147 volunteers that we can call on for different things that need to be done on Open Street. Um, but it started with just a few of us, uh, and it's just grown massively since then. Uh, it just takes will, and it takes you know some fortitude, but really, it's so worth it. And even people who, I'm, who initially might have been skeptical, once they they realize their own benefits for themselves, uh, tend to move over to your side. So it, it's really worth it. I urge anybody who you know identify a place uh, that it will work for you and that you're willing to volunteer for, and it can happen. Thanks, Jim. And so everybody who's anywhere near New York City should definitely get down to 34th Avenue in Queens. Between what and what? Uh, we're between 69th Street and Junction Boulevard. That's the entirety of Jackson Heights. And the open street is from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. A lot of cool neighbors who work really hard to make this as good as it is. All right. Well, we'll check back. Terrific. I lived in New York in the 80s and the 90s, and there were no open streets. And now to see that there's 26 blocks of one open street, as well as so much other infrastructure that's going in, it really uh, creates this idea that we can all live in a 15-minute city, you know, where you can accomplish almost everything you need within 15 minutes of your home. And you don't have to get in a car. If there's an open street, you don't have to get into your car to spend a gallon of gas to get a gallon of milk. And that brings me to you, Seamus, and, and San Francisco. You know, San Francisco has the Wiggle, which is this great bike route that takes you all around the city of San Francisco without going over any of the major hills. But they have lagged a little bit in open streets until recently. And you have a great interview today, no? I have an interview with two women from San Francisco, Annie Fryman and Robin Pam. Annie Fryman is director of special projects at SPUR, which is the San Francisco Bay Area Planning and Urban Research Association. In October, I went up there too, and Annie and I rode through all of these things. We, we did the Wiggle. We did JFK Drive, which is featured in this interview because Robin Pam uh, founded an organization. SF KidSafe. Yeah. She talks about it in the interview where losing the car-free JFK drive right. turned her into an advocate quickly. And there was this successful campaign. And I, and I thought, you know, these two, are, they know each other, they're friends. And they're like the two, two of the people that, of the few people that I know in San Francisco. And I was up there. And so we connected. They're, they're the perfect people to talk about the intersection of housing and transportation. Great, let's um, hear it. I'm here today with Robin Pam and Annie Fryman. On my trip to San Francisco, I reached out to these amazing women to, to talk about bikes. Um, and so we're just going get, to get started. Which Would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Thanks, Seamus. I'm Robin. I live here in San Francisco. I have two children, um, having a third one in another month or so. And uh, <laughs> I'm a founder of Kids Save San Francisco. And we had a ballot measure campaign that I ran last year to keep the main thoroughfare through Golden Gate Park, which is our city's major park, close to cars. And I was the campaign manager for that campaign. Yeah. Also the proud owner of two cargo bicycles and yeah. many other bicycles. Very cool. You on the podcast can't see that I'm miming an applause right now. Yeah. <laughs> you go ahead. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Annie Fryman. I am also a bike lady here in San Francisco. 
I worked in housing and transportation and city planning for most of my career. I guess most relevant to here is I was writing a bunch of laws for San Francisco locally and for the state of California for uh, Scott Wiener, who's a big bike champion and mobility champion, uh, trying to get bike lanes everywhere. For senator, he's a state senator. State senator in California, yeah. And a lot of what motivates me to work on transportation and bicycles is, unfortunately, I have been hit by a car in a freak accident not once but twice in my life. In, in San Francisco? Uh, one in the Bay Area, one out of the state. Um, once as a pedestrian, once on a bicycle. So I've got the ER bills to prove. Wow. I think I've seen these. The x-rays. importance of this work. <laughs> yeah. I've seen those X-rays. You show, You have them now. Like yeah, I've got a lot of scars. I I've known Annie for a minute now, um, because I worked as some folks know for another state legislator, assembly member, Laura Friedman, and our two bosses. We got to know each other at that. And Laura's also a cool bike mom. She's definitely a bike mom, for sure. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Measure J that you brought up, and bike moms. Yeah. And coalition building, and, <laughs> and all of that. All the things. How, how you ended up getting into that, and like sure. how, where, what the genesis of it all was, and how you know you became a bike, transporta- active sure. transportation advocate. I worked in tech for a long time in San Francisco. Um, always rode a bike to get around. It was a part of my daily commute for many, many years. Then had kids and didn't bike quite as much with kids until finally getting a cargo bike. Um, moving to kind of the suburbs of San Francisco and getting a cargo bike. And that happened right before the pandemic. And when the pandemic happened, the cargo bike became our main way of getting our toddler at the time to and from preschool. There were no buses that were running. There were no real other options other than driving. And uh, driving with kids is just not fun. I don't know if you've ever tried to like put a kid in a car seat, <laughs> in and out of the car all day. Um, and, you know, they complain. They're kind of messy. Like, the food gets everywhere. Driving with kids is just, like, it's kind of hard. But on a bike, like, they have so much fun. And they love it. Um, and... You know, it's just like not nearly as much of a headache. So became a bike mom and then early in the pandemic had a second baby. And I don't know if anyone remembers March of 2020, but society was not friendly to children at the time. There was no school. Even less than normal. <laughs> Even less than normal, right? There was no school, no childcare, no libraries, no parks, um, no playgrounds. You know, you couldn't really go anywhere. And so I had a newborn and a toddler at home. It's a double-edged sword to be on maternity leave then. But the only thing that we had in San Francisco at the time was uh, San Francisco closed a bunch of streets to cars. We closed the main street through Golden Gate Park, which is our version of Central Park here, to cars. We closed the Great Highway, which is a two-mile stretch of road right along our western edge. Last time I was up here, yeah. and you took me on, on that ride. And it took it was, you on a good slow streets bike tour of San Francisco. It's, nice. in a, it's just, people need to understand how beautiful San Francisco is. You guys take it for yeah. granted. You really, you don't understand. <laughs> I mean, you, I, you don't, it's like, I love riding everywhere, but San Francisco has a unique beauty. It me. is, yeah. I mean, we're really lucky to live here with those changes it wasn't that nice to bike on the Great Highway with cars. Before. Before. Oh, it was terrifying. Horrible. Yeah. You would do that? 
Isn't it? Isn't it essentially people a would? Oh, it's literally yeah. a freeway. <laughs> yeah, it's called the highway, Great Highway. I wouldn't do it with kids. Yeah, definitely no. not. It must be like something. Most adults don't do it. Yeah. For themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, but as a parent, I felt like this was the best thing that ever happened to the city. I would go with yeah. my newborn in a stroller, and my toddler would ride a balance bike or ride a scooter way out ahead of us. You didn't have to be afraid of cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and as as a mom, you know, walking around the neighborhood and being in the city, cars are like the number one thing that I'm constantly on guard for with my kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's so many dangers, but really, statistically, cars are like the number one thing I- Literally. As a parent. I think literally the number one killer of yeah. children, at least. Yeah, in, in, in California. Los An- in Los Angeles, maybe California. In the country, guns, guns. actually just surpassed cars last year. For Sad- Very sadly. Yeah. To be an American. I know. <laughs> but in California, I think cars are still the biggest danger to kids. So as a parent, like, these spaces were transformative. Um, and at one point, well into the pandemic, maybe about a year in, I turned to my husband and I said, I think we might need to leave the city if anybody tries to take these away because it really is like the best thing the city has ever done for families to give people space Mm -hmm. to just be and roll and not have to worry about the danger of cars and that measure j was not for the great highway but it was so yes fast forward turned out that people did really want to take these spaces away take them away from people and give them back to cars there were several supervisors on our board of supervisors who kind of kicked off a political moment by calling the closing of JFK to cars recreational redlining. Mm. I want to be clear, this was a 50-year fight in San Francisco. This was not something that um, just started during the pandemic. JFK had been closed to cars on Sundays for decades. In the mid-2000s, a compromise had been brokered to close it to cars half of Saturdays. And the main opposition to keeping it close to cars forever was a museum that was located in Golden Gate Park that felt like keeping it close to cars would take away some of their parking. So in March of 2021, we started Kids Save San Francisco to counter the recreational redlining uh, <laughs> framing and counter the did you guys come up with, power of the with museums. A, did you guys come up with a specific phrase to combat that? The thing that we did was call our organization Kids Safe mm-hmm. because what we found is that when we frame fights as bikes versus cars, bikes don't usually come out on top. Unless uh, fr- almost never, yeah. and man, I've tried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're listening to Bike Talk and Seamus Garrity's interview on the nexus of mobility and housing in San Francisco with Pam Robin, parent organizer at KidSafe SF, and Annie Fryman, director of special projects with the San Francisco Bay Area Planning and Urban Research Association. But when you show that the people using the space are children and families Mm -hmm. and that there's safety involved and that this really is about giving people safe places to recreate and enjoy and have this protected open space in the city yeah. it changes the tone of the politics you know it makes it much easier to build a coalition around an issue that is not just about bikes if it's not just about bikes you're saying it's just active transportation it's open space it's safety yeah it's it's parks safety 
open space. It's quality of life. It's health. Quality of I mean, life. It's mental yeah. health. It's all of it. Yeah. One of the most influential figures in the two-year campaign that we ran, both lobbying at the Board of Supervisors and the ballot measure campaign, was a guy who has been skating in Golden Gate Park for decades. I want to talk a little bit about what JFK yeah. uh, Drive is and what Golden Gate Park is. The, it the... stretches from kind of the middle of the city all the way out to our western edge at the ocean. Is it's it... essentially our version of Central Park. Is it bigger than Central Park? It might be a little bit bigger, but I think it's actually pretty similar. And same um, architect and designer as well. Yeah. Genius. So it, it really is like a strong corollary between two major cities. Amazing. You are an architect, aren't you? And... Uh, yeah, by education. I can't legally call myself an architect because I don't have my license yet. I can because I left before that phase. <laughs> but I studied I, architecture. Studied architecture, worked in architecture, learned to learn and do things like an architect. Amazing. So the Great Highway, it actually hits JFK. Yep. Great Highway is only car free now on the weekends, which is still a big win because that wasn't the way it was before. But right now, if you come to San Francisco on a Saturday or a Sunday. There is a car-free route from basically the center of the city all the way to the western edge, and then another two miles down the coast to basically the southern corner of the city. Uh, amazing. Which, for perspective, is six, seven, eight miles of car-free, yeah, I think unbroken it's like... for the most part. Yeah. Which is something that may sound like not much to people, but when you talk about this in an, in an urban environment that is San Francisco... It becomes a really yeah. important part of the city, right? Yeah. San Francisco is a square at the top of a peninsula that is seven miles by seven miles. Yeah. And so when you talk about having six to eight miles of entirely car-free and super geographically accessible place to recreate and be safe mm -hmm. and learn things and enjoy and be a community, that's a huge space. Yeah. Bike advocates have been advocating for specific things in LA for decades, probably mo yeah. more decades up here because <laughs> it's just that everything seems like it's always a little like 10 years ahead mm -hmm. of LA or something um, in advocacy world. It's not necessarily the, in the entire picture. A complete street needs walkability. It needs to consider people taking buses, all of that stuff. And, and cars, I think, are the unifying culprit in all of this, right? We need yeah. less cars. We need people to start thinking about how they get out of cars more. Absolutely. Um, but the bike, I feel, the bike infrastructure has provided that roadmap in, in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Well, I was just talking to someone yesterday from our transportation department here who was saying that one of the protected bike lanes that went in in San Francisco during the pandemic Decreased crashes on a major thoroughfare uh, on Fell Street, which goes right to Golden Gate Park, by 40%. And it's not like bike crashes. It's all kinds of crashes because they took away a lane of traffic. Mm. And they just narrowed the street a little bit by putting in a protected mm -hmm. bike lane, a parking protected bike mm. lane. Yeah. And as a result, like the street overall is 40% safer than it was before yeah, yeah. bay area stuff i mean god this place is so um, it's it's like 
heaven. Right? I mean, <laughs> it's, really it's nice to hear that from someone else. I love it. I got if it know. wasn't heaven, it yeah. wouldn't be worth the rent. Let me just say that. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing segue. We got to use that as the segue now to talk about. I think, Annie, specifically, I think that you, you have deep insight into this, but I wanted to get into the intersectionality of housing and, and transportation because I think that cars also make housing uh, policy and ho- housing projects difficult to get through, right? Like everybody's complaining about traffic. Everybody hates cars. Yeah, right? even the people who drive them. But so like, how do you think about this in a, in a term, in a, you're a housing expert. There are a few really, really, really universal experiences that every person fundamentally shares. And two of them are, we sleep somewhere at night and we get around during the times we're awake, right? And that's like a really strong tie-in, housing and transportation. Like they're intimately linked and it's a universal human experience that no one is exempted from. And so like we all have opinions about it, we're all affected by it, whether we study it, whether we do it professionally, whether we're just living our lives ignorantly, that's shared. Mm. Um, And when it comes into the really technical parts of how the two intersect, particularly in cities um, and in major job centers. Cars and the automobile in the United States, especially in the West, have been the forcing and design and infrastructure function for the machinery of cities that built around them, right? Like in Cities in Europe that are a thousand years old, that's not the case. In a lot of East Coast cities, that's not the case because they developed predating the car. In California and in a lot of the West, that is, right? The United States went under a military scale infrastructure project federally in the mid 20th century to make this a country of freeways. And in places where people did not live at a high volume before, you, you live life around a freeway. Um, and communities develop around a freeway and economies develop around a freeway. We now know because of a more sophisticated awareness of climate, of public health, of safety, of how people choose to and want to live and what makes a sustainable economy, that that was the wrong call, especially in our modern cities today. And there's a really challenging task in front of us that will happen during my lifetime of how do we retrofit around that fact that mm. we made those decisions 60, 70, 80 years ago. How do we retrofit around that fact? I like that. And, and that's an interesting thing coming into this as someone who is trained as an architect because so much of architecture is not you know, you have a blank document and you're doing something in a vacuum on a blank slate purely based on what's pretty. It's, there's a messy world in front of you and you need to do the best with what you have with your creativity and your imagination and your practicality and your problem solving. Um, And you can extend that to planning, right? And we all get around during the day and we all have to sleep somewhere at night. We've been forced to build housing dependent on how we store cars, where we drive cars, how we maintain our cars, and how we're dependent on cars, because that's what was forced on us before development patterns. Well, thinking about San Francisco, too, like, San Francisco is staring down needing to build over 80,000 units of new housing for a housing element, thanks to legislation Annie worked on when she was with Senator Wiener. And this is like a state law mandate for folks 
uh, listening outside of California. And a lot of that housing in San Francisco needs to go in our le- less dense areas on the west side that have been built around cars. Um, the suburbs of San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> Can you Do you mind explaining the housing element and what this is contextually for people who aren't in California, aren't in Los Angeles? Uh, Housing Element is a body of law in California that's existed since the 1970s and has been completely useless for 100% of that time until now. Um, It is a mandate that comes down from the state government through this weird channeling of bizarre governmental bodies that at the end of it says to every city in California... Over the next eight years, you need to plan and zone and prepare for the construction for X number of homes. Mm-hmm. For some cities, it's 2,000. For some cities, it's 80,000. For some cities, it's 300. For some cities, it's 40,000. And that's based on projected population growth and economic yeah. growth. And what's interesting, I think, in this last year, there's this story of, oh, you know, California, Los Angeles, San Francisco, we're losing population, right? We've lost people, but my, the commutes in cars are exploding. That's like mm-hmm. two hours because you have to live further away from wherever you're working because no one who wor- you know, works in a downtown can afford to live in a downtown anymore. Yeah. All else being equal, if people have the option to have a short commute and a long commute, they will choose the short commute. Mm-hmm. We've, we're forced to make compromises based on finances, based on space, based on all of the other things, but all else being equal, people want to be close to where they're trying to go. Yeah, for real. That is universal. Yeah. <laughs> and that is not something that has, in an intellectually coherent way, guided policy historically. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And cities have been able to ignore the housing law from the state for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And it was just a couple of years ago that Senator Weiner and others passed several laws in California that actually put teeth into this body of mm-hmm. law for the housing element saying, mm-hmm. okay, cities, now you actually have to pay attention. Otherwise we're going to do it for you. Yeah. And I think that also just tying this back to transportation and bikes, um, there's also an increased awareness of how, Mechanisms like the housing element that play such a powerful force in dictating where housing actually is easy to build, how that is connected to transportation, right? Like, where are our job centers? Mm -hmm. What income level are those jobs at? What income level is the housing being built, created for? What is the average miles per day that a person living in one area will travel by car, bicycle, bus, or foot versus living in another area, given that their job's going to be where their job's going to be, or their family's going to be where their family's going to be, their kids are going to go to school where their kids are going to go to school. We have these goals that we say that we have when it comes to climate and sustainability and carbon emissions. We have these goals that we say we have when it comes to our transportation infrastructure. We have these goals that we say we have on economic development. Mm -hmm. We have these goals we say we have on affordability and housing accessibility. And they're mutually conflicting with each other. (laughs) And there are now a lot of leaders that are really calling the questions to integrate that strategy as opposed to have them all be fighting priorities with each other that were set up to fail. Uh, and a lot of that includes a whole lot more people need to be able to live in places like San Francisco because they definitely want yeah. to. Oh my God. I want to live here. 
Families want to live here. We don't make it friendly for families. Young people want to live here. We don't make it friendly for young yeah. people. Old people want to live here. We don't make it friendly for old people. Well, I mean, tying it back to bikes and everything too, like we're going to have to build 80,000 units of housing in San Francisco. If all 80,000 of those people are dependent on their cars, they're not going to be able to get anywhere. Yeah. We're just going to have gridlock everywhere in the city. Mm-hmm. And layer on top of that, those are all going to be electric cars. Where are they all going to charge? Mm-hmm. How is that going to happen? Yeah. Again, you're listening to Bike Talk and Seamus Garrity's interview on the intersection of mobility and housing in San Francisco with Pam Robin, parent organizer at KidSafe SF, and Annie Fryman, director of special projects with the San Francisco Bay Area Planning and Urban Research Association. Another thing that I think has been really fascinating about, again, tying this back to bikes and also during the pandemic, is that as Robin mentioned before, we had three really separate initiatives that all had to do with closing streets to cars. We had the road through Golden Gate Park. We had the great highway that's the two miles up and down the ocean on the western side of the city. And then we had this patchwork of what we call slow streets that were between probably like four and 15 blocks, depending on the neighborhood, um, of normal residential streets that were totally closed to cars and vehicles unless you were turning into a driveway on that street. Yeah. There were so many people in San Francisco that adjusted their commuting habits and not just to work but how they get around the city because of those slow streets Mm -hmm. one anecdote of this is i know someone who had not biked ridden a bike since they were probably eight years old now in their 30s terrified of biking in cities had always lived in cities grew up in texas you're not going to be if you have a self-preservation instinct you're not going to be on a bicycle um kicked a lifetime cigarette habit and became a person who bikes across town seven miles a day to work yeah because they could feel safe on a bicycle for the first time ever Mm -hmm. and that that is not just getting cars off the street that is carbon emissions that is being more in touch with the local businesses along the route of where you're going that's a public health thing that's a community building thing well and i think the other the other trend to layer in there like not just the slow streets but the fact that e-bikes have proliferated Mm -hmm. so much in the past couple years um the the boom in e-bikes really coincided Mm -hmm. with the beginning of the pandemic when all of these car-free streets became reality Mm -hmm. and so you have And I mean, furthermore, like public transportation wasn't working as well. So people were looking for alternatives that they could use that wouldn't put them in a car or that would let them get where they were going on time and quickly. They wanted the safe infrastructure. So Mm -hmm. fast forward a couple years, like we were able to keep it because all of these people, this growing constituency was able to kind of see like we can come together Mm -hmm. and demand change. I agree. And I think that really we are seriously at a turning point in, in, in history. I really, I, I, and that might sound excessive to say, but because of the pandemic, you know, because people, uh, I, me personally, maybe I'm just, you know, talking about myself, but for me, the bike is, is mental health. You know, for me, it's, it's, it's getting out of my head. It's like, if, especially if you're working in government during the <laughs> pandemic, I mean, I was helping people with, you know, everything from EDD, you know, getting their, getting their money, unemployment, unemployment, mm-hmm. getting their housing vouchers, whatever they needed. People were crying. I mean, it was a horrible, was, horrible yeah. time. Thousands people with people. your job were more or less running a 24 hour suicide hotline. Absolutely. Ter- I, I'm not exaggerating. It was, it, it was gnarly. And the, for me, it was like, I would do those calls all day long mm-hmm. and then I would ride my bike. And that was 
became it became such a thing. Now yeah. I am unwilling, and I was riding before, but now it has become a central part of 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 my life. I also um, think another part, you know, just to bring this back to like people of all generations and families is. You know, the American city is not built around being a friendly place for teenagers either. Like, we don't have a lot of public spaces where teenagers can have a safe amount of autonomy. Even in cities as, quote, urban and livable as San Francisco, it's just not the case. And so if you can imagine, put yourself in the position of someone who is 12, 13, 14, 15 years old during the pandemic, losing those years of your life in terms of your social development, your school, your sports, your all of those different things and if yeah. we can have these slow streets in every neighborhood that act as a park and a meeting point and a social gathering for kids that do not have that elsewhere and if they do they're risking infection in a deadly pandemic yeah. like that's so critical well and that's where i mean so many of our parents at kids safe san francisco i think a lot of our um a lot of people think of us as parents of young children and seeing cute little kids on their balance bikes riding in the park learning how to ride a bike learning yeah. how to ride a bike in these <laughs> safe spaces but we have a lot of parents part who are part of our network and who are who have become active on this issue because they have teenagers Mm-hmm. And they're raising their teens in the city and they want their teens to bike to school safely and they want them to be able to bike to their after school activities or take the bus. And, mm-hmm. you know, for me, that's a huge motivation of raising children in the city is that they can have that autonomy longer term and they can there's actually really good data out there that kids that grow up in countries like the Netherlands or Denmark where they have the freedom to move mm-hmm. and the freedom to go where they want to go. Um, they have much lower rates of suicide, of mental health issues. They get better grades in school. They, they just have better outcomes overall. And also and their really parents can. are probably better off because they're not worrying all the time. Especially, well, and you know who's really better off is moms. Yeah. Because moms so disproportionately bear the burden of taking kids around in the minivan to yeah. all the after-school activities and, mm-hmm. you know, have to give up their jobs or work less to be able to, to manage children's schedules. Mm-hmm. For sure. But if, as a city, you can create an environment where teens have that freedom and autonomy. It, it frees up everyone and really has benefits. And also, obviously, cars are a status symbol. And growing up, 80s, 90s, aughts. I mean, now, there was a, there was a walker had a, an article, I think she wrote an article, maybe it was just a tweet, about the, the car commercials during the Super Bowl. <laughs> And I and I know people probably like you know just like laugh like laugh that off and I'm not saying we are but we're laughing because the the commercials it's like what are we supposed to do right we're we're fighting for these things for bike lanes we're fighting to make bikes it's not even they I think people want them they think they're cool but then you have like Biden or or a movie star. <laughs> Uh, you know, driving an F one million Biden and the electric Hummer and the electric that, that that's the stuff that just has to we have to like yeah change. I mean, I yeah. think too. Just I will be the the voice of people who have gotten hit by cars. So much of the moralizing around automobiles right now is the climate angle of electric vehicles. Like, if you drive an electric vehicle, you can feel good about being Mm. a driver. And I think that that's something that's so important to challenge because, one, a lot of the pollution that comes from cars is not from exhaust. It's actually from 
brake pads, it's from tire dust, it's from all these things, all of those local environmental impacts that give kids asthma and other health impacts are not, those are not solved by electric cars. And further, for a ton of different reasons, we are seeing cars that are sold in the United States get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger with no end in sight. Mm -hmm. And if you are a mom of a three-year-old who is living your life because you sleep somewhere at night and you get around during the day, you probably have to cross a street at some point during the day. Even if you drive a car, you have to cross a street on foot at some point during the day. And you are dodging vehicles that can barely see you as an adult mother, much less your three-year-old who you're holding their hand. Mm-hmm. Even in San Francisco, where cars <laughs> tend to be smaller than other cities, it's still like the most frightening experiences I've ever had as a parent have yeah. been mm-hmm. 100%, on our streets. And this, like, this moralizing of you're a good person as long as you're driving an electric vehicle, I think is really modeled from the top, and I think it is really backwards and harmful um, because yeah. that is not what keeps us safe like existentially that contributes to the safety of human life on planet earth or, but that does not keep people safe yeah. and also there is there are other life forms other than human beings and, <laughs> and they are and we are experiencing an extinction period yeah. right where we're losing species. so dramatic yeah. i love and, it and so but there's also the question of biodiversity yeah. and the issue that freeways but, the product that, that, that the freeways yeah. have caused you know Mm-hmm. Mountain lions in in Southern California. I mean, like P twenty two is famous because <laughs> he crossed two freeways to claim. It's gonna be a Griffith Pixar Park. movie about that guy. No, I, I will it. say. I mean, I I agree with all of this. I'm totally on team bike, team anti anti car, and everything. And anti giant car, anti giant car <laughs> in particular. But you know, our big learning from the past couple years of doing this political advocacy work in San Francisco is that. To actually achieve these goals, to change the policies that have led to larger cars, to change the policies that have led to our dangerous streets, we really have to, I think, both build coalitions across different types of groups mm-hmm. that aren't just bikers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like principled and, car-free families. Right, or yeah. principled car-free families. And to do that, we have to talk about a lot more than just bikes or mm-hmm. the dangers of cars. We want our ballot measure by 65% to 35%. But to get to 50 plus one on a ballot measure, 50% plus one with voters, you have to talk to a lot of people who drive cars and live in single family homes. Yeah. And you have to appeal to them in a way that is not just about bikes or not just about being anti-car. It's actually about, you know, what we found really works is what Seamus said earlier, talking about the whole picture of complete streets, of open space that is vibrant and protected and community building and mm-hmm. a gathering place. Um and when you do that, you actually can build these coalitions and get um, get people to come along and get to that 50% plus one that you need to change people's minds and also bring politicians along with the cause too. And I think that's something we really miss in a lot of active mobility organizing. Like the traditional bike ped world is very militant. And like I say that as being a part of it, but... <laughs> it's, no, it's a problem. It's but a problem. it's... Well, I mean, it's the thing where it's just a matter of how like pure you want to be versus how practical and incremental wins right and i think that like robin's explaining something really really insightful which is that what they did with prop j and with car free jfk was transformational and in order to do that they couldn't be purists and be successful 
for sure. And like that, that tension is really important, I think, to hold at the same time. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think that it should be seen as a tool for accomplishing these goals. Diverse coalitions are the only kind of coalitions, especially in places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, any urban environment that's that is di- as diverse mm-hmm. as California is, you're talking about changing fundamentally the systems of how, how we get around. Mm-hmm. So you need everybody's yeah. input, right? Because mm-hmm. regardless of best intentions, the best intentions, you're going to get you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. redlining. Um, another just sort of cool anecdote I think that illustrates this well in San Francisco is that we have, you know, for many decades had bicycling advocates in San Francisco who have been fighting to fight for protected bike lanes for whom pretty much the only user is a person who rides a bike. It's a fight fundamentally between finite space of either cars that are parked or driving and a person moving on a bicycle. One of the really cool things about, in particular, the Slow Streets program in San Francisco was when we closed down these stretches of residential streets to cars entirely, is that people could enjoy that space in a million different ways, some of which didn't even have to do with mobility, right? You have, like, there was this network of, they called themselves the Slow Streets mayors, and every, like... We organized that. Yeah, it was... was, one of our projects. And it was incredible. And it was like... (laughs) Every individual slow street had a slow streets mayor that did programming on their slow street. And you had bands and you had block parties and you had cookouts and you had kids on scooters and you had old people coming out of their home when they didn't really do it that often. You had people meeting their neighbors. We have a slow street in our neighborhood here in San Francisco. And the other day, my son and I were, we were driving because I'm very pregnant, but we were (laughs) driving on the slow street just for a block. And we passed by one of the intersections where we often had our block parties and have had a lot of events for activating mm-hmm. the slow street. And he pointed to it, my six-year-old, and he said, um, that's the happy street. Mm. I was like, why is that the happy street? And he said, well, that's where the best Halloween and all the fun parties happen. Mm. <laughs> and That's beautiful. I yeah. love that. Wow. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think there's something really cool about, like, we get so in this bike ped world historically of, like, getting used to fighting for crumbs and you have to be more and more and more militant about a narrower and narrower and narrower thing. And there's something mm-hmm. really cool about witnessing, let's take away 10 times more space and it can serve 10 times more and more different types of people for what they want to use it for. Well, I think that was a big lesson from the pandemic is that going after big things first actually paves the way for mm-hmm. a lot more change down the road. And one thing I think also just um, in terms of the mechanics of how this went down that I think was also like something probably hopefully nationally interesting to people listening to this is that people in San Francisco have been noodling on how on earth could we close streets for a long time. That's not a new idea. However, the opportunity was that during COVID, there was a state of emergency where the mayor could do things without as many obstacles in the way. You can be more experimental. And so you can say during COVID, we're going to have this basically pilot program due to the specific circumstances of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. If you had asked people for permission, they would have found a million and six different ways to say this is the worst thing ever. Mm -hmm. If you do it, let people fall in love with it. Yep. And then they get attached and dependent on it, and then you win Prop J. Well, this is a really key point from the NIMBY playbook. Um, (laughs) NIMBYs are so powerful in housing and in so many places because they're fighting to protect the status quo. 
And we all have an inherent status quo bias of just like wanting things to kind of stay the way they are and being Mm -hmm. afraid of what's coming and what's new. Yeah. But with Prop J, we were fighting to protect the status quo, which was a car-free street 24-7. That's a really good point. Yeah. It's a really interesting way to think about it. Yeah. And we crushed it because we were protecting the status quo. Yeah. So I think it, it is a really interesting question for advocates and it's something we're thinking about now as we think about the future of KidSafe is how do we create more opportunities to show people what this kind of change can look like on a daily basis, whether it's pilot programs or temporary demonstration projects. Um, Give people ways to fall in love with the experiment. Yeah. (laughs) Let them fall in love with the experiment so that it becomes so hard to take it away versus trying to sell a vision. I've definitely fallen in love with San Francisco. And I'm happy to sit down with both of you. Thank you, Robin and Annie, for coming to Bike Talk. You came to us. You came here, actually. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That was such a fun conversation with Annie and Robin. Um, I, I, I'm looking forward to kind of what Kids Safe SF continues to do. They have statewide policy goals. But I also got to talk to Karen Whitaker, Deputy Executive Director of League of American Bicyclists, doing the uh, National Bike Summit in D.C. from March 26th to the 29th. Exciting because Bike Talk, we are talking about our own bike summit. And so I think that we will attend this and and try to kind of get our own ideas and continue the the momentum. But but here is the interview with Karen. Good morning, Karen. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So who comes to these professional planners, people from bike organizations, bike advocates of all kinds? Yeah, I'd say the vast majority come from biking and walking advocacy organizations. But we also do get some planners, people from local governments. We get a number of people from universities whose job it is to make their university either more sustainable or bicycle friendly. There's some bike industry there. There's health advocates. But we also get a lot of support from the Federal Highways Administration. So we see a lot of their folks coming. And this year, we have a number of state DOT employees coming as well. There's a bike tour. There's probably a lot of bike tours of D.C. What will attendees be doing and seeing at this one? Yes. Yeah, so the conference has both a virtual option and an in-person. So if you come in person, you get to do a lot of bike riding if, if you choose. The summit is happening at the same time as cherry blossom season. Amazing. So, yeah. So you'll get to go see the, the Jefferson Memorial with the cherry blossoms, mm. those sorts of things. But we also have opportunities to go see traffic gardens in place. So at schools where they're teaching kids, you know, how to ride their bike in traffic and do it safely and stop at stop signs, things like that. We've got a mobile workshop that's being done by a a theater company about how to be present when you're on your bike. Mm-hmm. And also opportunities to just see some of the sites in DC. Um, I'm assuming don't don't listen to headphones while you're riding is one of those how to be present. Um, So there are multiple workshops at the same time for most of the summit. Is there some thought in scheduling these sessions to have something for everybody at each time of the day? Yeah, absolutely. In the morning, we'll have both mobile workshops and in-person workshops. And those are for folks who are there in person, policy focused, or it could be education focused, or it could be like how to make changes in your community. Mm -hmm. I'd say in the afternoon, we have all the sessions which will be online, but will also be shown at the conference session. So if you're there in person, you can watch it with people. But if you're remote, you can watch it as well. 
And the great thing about those sessions is they'll be recorded. So if you're having a hard time choosing between two sessions, you can go to one and then listen to the other or watch the other when you get home from the conference. Yeah, I see tactical urbanism in action, creative writing, using the body, breath, and bicycle to make creative connections, the why and how of accessibility audits. Um, I like that. The tactical urbanism is looking at infrastructure on the ground and how it makes us safer. The creative writing is more of that's that theater company one. And the how and why is going to be with people with disabilities and how to look at the street and the infrastructure from that perspective. And is it actually accessible? Mm -hmm. So those are some options. We'll have sessions on AVs and what's happening with AVs. Mm -hmm. We'll have a session talking about how trucks and SUVs keep getting bigger and bigger and they have those blind zones in front of them, which if you're on Twitter, on bike Twitter, you'll see a lot of pictures of people standing in front of trucks and the trucks is as big as them. And so we'll talk about what's happening there and like how we can start to address that issue. Make them illegal. We got to make yeah. them illegal. Yeah, speaking of that, so is there a time when attendees get to the lobby, they're Congress people or, or is it mostly Congress people? Yes. We'll have a lot of people from the administration speaking at the summit and we'll have some folks in person. But then on Wednesday, the 29th, We've set up lobby meetings for participants who want to come, and we're going to be talking about truck safety. We're going to be talking about e-bikes and e-bike rebates, safety in general. So we have folks from every state who are acting as state coordinators. They're setting the meetings. Mm -hmm. A lot of those meetings will be in person. There will be some for folks who are participating virtually, but yeah. we'll do some training on that. And if you can't come to the summit and be part of that, your member of Congress is going to be home the two weeks after the summit. So you could always make an appointment and talk with them then. Nice. I, I'll be participating virtually from, from LA. I'm looking forward Great. to it. Can you share any insights about how to organize a successful summit like this? Uh, it's just a lot of work. Part of it, uh, which you already touched on, is making sure that there's sessions for people who are coming for different reasons. Mm -hmm. So if you're a league certified instructor and you're interested in bike education, we want to make sure that there's places to talk about that, both sort of educational sessions and also just times to catch up with what we're doing with education. Mm -hmm. If you're you know, working with a state or local group, we'll have sessions about, so here are some model laws and ways that you can push for, you know, reducing speed limits. Or, you know, if you're just starting out, like there's going to be a workshop on fundraising. And then there'll be just some of those fun things. Like, let's just be on our bikes and have fun and enjoy it. Love that. That's how I ride. Is the mission of this summit, is it education? Or what is the mission behind the summit? Well, you know, our larger goal is really just to make a bicycle-friendly America. One big reason we have it in D.C. is so that we can bring those voices to Capitol Hill and we can push for that legislation. So the infrastructure law is requiring the Department of Transportation to look at the safety with trucks and putting a side guard or like a barrier on the side of a truck so that if you hit it, you bounce off and you might get injured, but you're not going to get stuck underneath the wheel. Yeah, And so that's a really important thing. That's called a side guard. And what we need for bicyclists is a little different than what you need for cars. So we really want to make sure that bicyclists are part of that discussion, part of the research, part of the regulation that comes out of it. Sure. So that's one big piece. But I also think it's 
just in a time to get together and share best practices and have a chance to learn from each other. I love it. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really, we really appreciate it. And, you know, last question we, we often ask is related to bike joy. Where do you find bike joy in your life? I mean, you're working on this all the time, probably. So where do you find it? Over COVID, I really got into just being out on trails and a little bit of gravel riding. So this mm-hmm. year, I'm going with some friends to do the bike ride from Pittsburgh to DC. It's mostly gravel trail. It's a little paved trail. So just thinking about that and training for that has brought me a lot of joy. That's amazing. Enjoy that. I'm jealous. When is that? Not until September, but I'm already like dreaming about it. All right, Karen. Thank you. Thanks. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around.